welcome to another episode of the Reformation Roundtable podcast. My name is Joe Stout, and this podcast is a ministry of Christ Covenant Church in Lewis County, Washington. During each episode, you will discover the sermons, exhortations, discussions, and interviews from our various weekly gatherings. Christ Covenant Church is a historically reformed and evangelical church that has been serving the greater Centralia Chehalis area since May of 2021. We meet for worship each Lord's Day to sing psalms and hymns, confess our historic faith, hear the word faithfully proclaimed, and celebrate together the Lord's Supper. Throughout the week, we go out into the world to build the kingdom of Christ right here in Lewis County. If this sounds like a vision for you, we would love to have you join us. Head on over to lewiscounty.church, that is lewiscounty.church, where you will find a calendar of events as well as current times and locations for worship. Please enjoy the following audio. Our scripture meditation for worship this morning comes from Psalm 3, verses 1 through 4. O Lord... How many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, There is no salvation for him in God. Selah. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory, and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. Selah. Let us pray. Lord, Heavenly Father, when we give attention to the world around us, our foes appear many. It can feel as though they are on our every side, But you are with us, Lord. You watch over us and answer us when we cry to you for salvation. Though the deceivers try to prevent us from turning to you, O God, we can rest and trust in you, for you guide and protect us. Please do so this morning, Lord, as we bring our worship and praises to you in this place. Soli Dio Gloria, and amen. Amen. Please rise with me as we worship the triune God. Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Lord is near to all who call upon him, to all who call upon him in truth. He fulfills the desire of those who fear him. He also hears their cry and saves them. So we have been going through Ecclesiastes in our Reformation Roundtable meetings. Uh, No news to many of you. Uh, This last Thursday, we were going over Ecclesiastes chapters 1, verse 12, through chapter 2, verse 16. And it was just too good not to share with the rest of you. So for those of you who have already heard some of this, uh, just listen again. So we are going through Ecclesiastes with the help of Jeff Meyer's book, A Table in the Mist. And I think that's been a helpful study aid. One of the things that Jeff hones in on in his book is uh, this translation of the word hebel. And if I'm pronouncing that, I could be pronouncing that wrong, but it's a Hebrew word, hebel which is translated most often as vanity. So it's usually vanity of vanities. That's what we're used to, right? But Jeff's point is is that hebel can also be translated as breath or vapor. And he makes the argument that breath or vapor is a better translation of the word. And with this in mind, I'm going to read Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verses 12 through 18. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. 
It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity or vapor, and a striving or shepherding after the wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me, and my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge, and I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceived that this also is but a striving after the wind, for in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. Solomon was the preacher. He was the king over all Israel. He was, by many arguments, one of the most successful, rich, wise, and blessed kings in all of Israel. Much of this, of course, though, was due to the faithful worship and stewardship of David, his father. The words, then, that Solomon wrote here are a bit jarring. How could he have been so blessed and yet count the business that God has given to the children of man to be an unhappy thing? Or, seeing that everything that was done under the sun and and knowing so much about the ways of man, how is it that that knowledge was a striving after the wind or a vexation? This passage can be challenging. It is challenging, for me at least. We can rest, though, in the fact that we know how Solomon ends the story, and it is a good ending. But we need to pause here, I think, and we need to consider our ways, as the Lord also mentions in Haggai 1.7. Consider your ways, O man. What do we do when we make ourselves busy with the business that the Lord has given to us? We can, in fact, be doing works that God has given to us to do, but do it in a way that seeks to shepherd the wind, which, of course, is useless. It is vanity. When the Lord appoints things for us to do, we are to do them wholly unto the Lord, and not seeking excess, not seeking gain, or profit. Chapter 2, verse 11 says, Then I considered all that my hands had done, and the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and striving after the wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. Vapor, shepherding the wind, nothing to be gained. The understanding here is that there's no profit, there's no advantage that we get over God overdoing these things. The gain can also be translated as profit. The idea is that if we work to gain an upper hand in the schemes of life, we are trying to shepherd the wind, and we should repent of that. Day in and day out, we can work at what we do diligently, cheerfully, but we give all glory to God and understand that our lives are a vapor and that the only the eternal things that we do are the things that will last. So ponder your works. Consider your ways. Think on what you do. We all need to provide for ourselves. We all need to provide for our families. We need to do the good works that God has set in place for us to do, but we also need to do that by checking our heart as we do it and make sure that we aren't doing it just for selfish gain or striving after the wind. We need to listen and heed the warning that Solomon gives us. So with this in mind, let us come before God in prayer. As you are able... Please kneel with me, and then we will pray together a portion of Psalm 51, which is printed in your bulletins for you to follow along with. We ask all of these things in Jesus' holy name, and amen. Amen. Please rise for the assurance of pardon. 
Isaiah 55, verses 6 through 9 says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord, and he will have mercy on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. People of God, you have humbled yourselves in faith. Now hear the good news and believe. Your sins are forgiven through Christ. Let us sing the doxology in response. Good morning. Our text this morning comes from um, the letter of Paul to the Colossians. Colossians chapter 2, verse 16 through 23. This is the word of God. So let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbaths, which are a shadow of things to come, but the substance is of Christ. Let no one cheat you of your reward, taking delight in false humility and worship of angels, intruding into those things which he has not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom all the body, nourished and knit together by joints and ligaments, grows with the increase that is from God. Therefore, if you died with Christ from the basic principles of the world, why, as though living in the world, do you subject yourselves to regulations? Do not touch, do not taste, do not handle, which all concern things which perish with the using, according to the commandments and doctrines of men. These things indeed have an appearance of wisdom in self-imposed religion, false humility, and neglect of the body, but are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. This is the word of the Lord. We pray with me. Father, you are the ultimate communicator. Everything we must know about you is found here in your revealed word. As we approach this text, we ask that you would cause our hearts and our minds to revel in the glorious gospel truth that Christ is sufficient to save sinners, that he is our present reality, and that the shadows have been pushed back and are being overwhelmed by the Son of Righteousness. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Well, good morning and happy Father's Day to all of our fathers present. It's a joy to have the opportunity to preach God's Word this morning. Uh, And it's been about uh, eight weeks since the last time I preached as we've been slowly working our way through the book of Colossians, Paul's letter to those saints. This is our uh, our sixth message on on this epistle. And as a brief recap, Uh, I'd like to remind you that in week number one, we were able to get an inside look at Paul's vision for the gospel in Colossae. He fully expected the gospel to bear fruit in Colossae as it was also bearing fruit in the rest of the world. He expected this while he was sitting in jail. We learned that we also should expect to bear fruit as we witness Christ's kingdom advancing throughout Lewis County and the world. In week two, we heard Paul's argument that the reason the gospel is going forth in victory is because God is qualifying his saints for his kingdom through the preeminent and sufficient work of Christ the King. Uh, We learned that a saint is one who has access to the sanctuary, and those of us found in Christ are saints. We belong in the sanctuary of God because Christ has qualified us. 
Week, week three, we learned of the preeminence of Christ and how all things were made by him and for him and how through him the mystery of salvation, a salvation that all of creation had been longing for, has now been revealed. Week four taught us that Paul saw our lives um, in Christ as a clear spiritual battlefield in which the enemy is going to try and deceive us They're going to try and deceive us with false and empty philosophy. They're going to try to get us to return to our old life, our old life of of slavery to sin. Therefore, we are to always be preparing for this battle. Always be battling with thanksgiving and always be striving onward and upward for the prize, marching forward into the promised land of Christ's kingdom. Finally, in week five, on Easter morning, we rejoiced in the reality that Christ a man alive forever at the right hand of God has made us alive together with him in his resurrection. He was able to do this because the certificate of debt that each of us carried, those tens of thousands, those millions of sins against God's holy law that condemned us to death, of all of which we were 100% responsible, all of these debts were nailed to the cross and taken out of the way forever. So this week, as we finish out chapter 2 of Colossians 2, we'll find that Paul is earnestly warning, against, warning us against trying to add to the sufficiency of Christ's finished work on the cross. His death paid in full that certificate of debt that we owed, and we mustn't make the grave mistake of trying to add to this completed work. The Judaizers were trying to get the Colossian Christians to continue to follow the old covenant law as though nothing had changed, as though, Paul, as, as though Christ hadn't come. Paul wants them to realize that these old covenant laws are like shadows of Christ. And now that Christ has come, the shadows must no longer have the priority. We must not look to them. Now we look to the one casting the shadow, Jesus Christ. Paul is going to warn us to not let anyone judge us, to not let anyone cheat us, and to not let anyone cause us to be subjected to Christless righteousness. Christless righteousness is law minus the lawgiver, and it is no righteousness at all. Only Christ's work is sufficient, and there is nothing we can add to it without paradoxically taking away from the sufficiency of of the completed work of Christ. So, if you've got your Bibles, let's look at those first two verses, verses 16 and 17. We're going to go verse by verse through this, taking them in two verse sections. Verse 16 and 17 says, So let no one judge you in food or in drink, or regarding a a festival or a new moon or Sabbaths, which are a shadow of things to come, but the substance is of Christ. So throughout this letter, Paul is arguing that Christ is sufficient to qualify us as saints. Uh, If you've got your Bibles, just flip back to chapter 1 of of Colossians, and let's look at verse 12. So Colossians 1, verse 12, we're going to read three verses, 12, 13, and 14. Uh, Paul says, um, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of His love, in whom we have redemption through His blood, 
the forgiveness of sins. Um, Paul then goes on to argue um, that Christ is able to do this. He is able to qualify us as saints because he is preeminent, which he explains in verse 16, going down just a couple verses, which he explains in verse 16 of chapter 1 that all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things consist. So by the time we arrive at verse 16 of chapter 2, Paul has been telling us that saints are fully sufficient in Christ because Christ is fully sufficient to save us from the power of darkness. He goes to the logical conclusion that because of this, we should not let anyone judge us in regards to what we eat, what we drink, and what days we celebrate and observe. He actually gives a command here. He says, let no one judge you. So we know from this we're supposed to actually do something. This is a command. This is a, an imperative. It's not just something to believe, an indicative. It's an imperative. So what are we supposed to actually do? Uh, this might seem like a pretty tall order. How do we keep people from judging us? Should we try to please them no matter what so that they don't have any judgy thoughts towards us? Should we attempt to be wisdom? Uh, should, we, should we attempt to be winsome no matter the cost of truth? No. Certainly not. It's a fool's errand to try and control what other people think about us in the first place. But when you add to that the fact that Jesus promised us, he promised us that if we were faithful to him, that, the, that it would guarantee the world would hate us. And it pretty much becomes obvious when you take those two things into consideration. You can't control people, and if you're faithful to Jesus, the world's going to hate you. It becomes obvious that we can't stop people from being judgmental toward us. So Paul doesn't mean make sure nobody's ever judging you. What Paul actually means, he's warning us to be on guard so that when people do unjustly condemn us, we won't be swayed from our faith in the sufficiency of Christ. We won't even give that thought a credence, the credence of, of thought. These unbiblical judgments that place the complete completeness of Christ's work into question They have no authority. They have no bearing on our relationship with God. They're irrelevant. If you're found in Christ, you are a saint. You have sanctuary access. And you can't get any closer to God than being welcome in his sanctuary. To have the privilege of coming boldly before his throne of grace, that is a tremendous privilege. And that is what those in Christ have. And yet... There is the real possibility that we might be swayed by these judgments. We might allow the ungodly's judgments against us to alter our faithfulness to Christ. It's a real possibility, and so Paul warns us to be on guard and watch our own hearts with self-control. We, if we think about it, we've all experienced what he's talking about. If we've ever gotten feedback from people on anything, it could be something as simple as a haircut, We heard from 20 people, 19 could give positive, glowing encouragement, but if just one is critical, just one, it can be almost impossible to get such judgment out of your mind. Paul knows how tempting this is going to be. Now, now, this is not always such a bad thing. Scripture promises that a faithful man will be willing to wound his friend with righteous judgment if he's out of the line of the word of God. And he's in need of rebuke, but that's not what's going on here. Paul is not saying ignore faithful rebukes, but rather he's saying let no one judge you 
based on the following things. What you eat, what you drink, what days you observe. Because at the time of this letter, the Judaizers, the New Testament Jews who were seeking to corrupt Christianity, they were engaged in a full court press on the Colossian Christians. They were attempting to get them to adopt or go back to old covenant ways, old covenant thinking, food laws, ceremonial laws, and sacrificial laws. In essence, they were arguing that additional steps to salvation were required through obedience to the law. Paul's command is to simply disregard these opinions and judgments. Just disregard them. Give them no place in your mind. What Paul is warning against is grounded in the question, who do you fear? We must fear God, not man. We must obey God, not men, and we must seek to be pleasers of God, not pleasers of men. When others want to pass judgment on us for not following rules that God has either not commanded or expressly forbidden, our response should be to blow a raspberry and continue faithfully serving the king. Kids, if you don't know what blowing a raspberry is, ask your parents after church. And if you know, no demonstrations. So Old Testament food laws or various days of celebration, these were but a shadow of the Christ who was to come. These laws were all good in their time before the coming of Christ, but now that Christ is here, now that Christ has come, these laws are like the moon compared to the sun, like a shadow compared to the one who casts the shadow. There is no comparison in terms of glory or goodness or completeness, and only a fool would want to cling to the shadow when the real person the shadow belongs to is here. As we've been saying, Christ is preeminent and is sufficient, and we need to believe this. I repeat it because oftentimes we don't believe it. Food laws, as understood in the Old Covenant, are no longer of any value because when Christ came, he expressly made all foods clean. It's not that the law is gone. The law, the law will never go away. Christ promised that. It's that all foods have been made clean. Now that Christ has come, we are no longer violating the law that prohibits unclean foods. There aren't any more unclean foods. Praise God. Christ came to make all things new, and food was at the top of the list of the many things he redeemed and is redeeming. He taught us that what goes into a man does not defile him, but rather what comes out of his heart. All food is good. All food is clean. All food should cause us to give thanks to God who daily provides for our needs, organic or not, homemade or not, passed through a car window or not. All food should cause us to praise God from whom all blessings flow. Just as our relationship to food has radically changed with the coming of Christ, our observance and celebration of days has also been completely transformed. Paul refers to festivals, new moons, and Sabbath days, all of which are based on the phases of the moon. James Jordan points out that all of these days of observance have their roots in the night, which is now over. The Jews set their months based on the moon. Our, our calendar, the Gregorian calendar, ignores the phases of the moon. In fact, we don't, most of us don't even pay attention to the phases of the moon. But the Jews set their months based on the new moon. Every time there was a new moon, that was the beginning of the month. And the law required a sacrifice and an observance. 
Festivals were generally based off the number of days after the new moon. Uh, Like the Feast of Booths, that happened 15 days after the new moon. Um, Hanukkah, I believe, happened 15 days after the new moon because that was the brightest time of the month. That was when there was a full moon. But they were generally based off of the number of days after the new moon. Sabbaths, the Sabbaths were celebrated from sundown of the night being celebrated to sundown of the following night. There was an overwhelming emphasis on the night in the Old Covenant. This is why the prophets, and by extension the gospel writers, place such an emphasis on Jesus being the light of the world. If you've got your Bibles, turn with me to Matthew 4, Matthew chapter 4. Uh, And in Matthew chapter 4, we're going to look at verse 16 and 17. Matthew is um, quoting Isaiah. So you're kind of getting two Bible verses for the price of one here. Because not only is it in the New Testament, it's quoting from the Old Testament. But it says, The people who sat in darkness have seen a great light. And upon those who sat in the region and shadow of death, light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach and to say, Repent. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Also, flip back like two pages to the Old Testament where you hit Malachi. Malachi is the last chapter in the Old Covenant. And we're going to look at the last chapter or the last chapter of the last book. And we're going to look at the first three verses of this. Listen to it and listen to its emphasis on the word day. Malachi 4 verses 1 through 3. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, and all the proud, yes, all who do wickedly will be stubble, and the, and the day which is coming shall burn them up, says the Lord of hosts, that will leave them neither root nor branch. But to you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall arise with healing in its wings, and you shall go out and grow like stall-fed calves. You shall trample the wicked, for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet, On the day that I do this, says the Lord of hosts. Old covenant is the night of the world. We no longer live in that night, but in the glorious day of the son of righteousness. And therefore we have no need to be held to the nighttime festivals of the old covenant. For we have the true substance from which all these shadow-like laws point to. The God-man, Jesus Christ. Excuse me. Before moving on, I'd like to just point out that this verse, um, uh, excuse me, Colossians 2, uh, this verse has been used by antinomians to argue against observing the Lord's Day each week. Now, here's uh, here's your $20 theological word. Antinomians are those who say that there are no parts of God's law that Uh, that have any binding authority over believers. Antinomian means against the law. And it's rampant in modern Christianity. Thank you so much, Luke. Antinomianism is rampant in modern Christianity. It's everywhere. Uh, Essentially, antinomians assert that these verses nullify the fourth commandment, which requires us to honor the Sabbath day. This isn't correct, as there are Sabbath observances throughout Old Covenant that are in addition to the Sabbath referred to in the Fourth Commandment, which is the day of rest and worship. Paul is not nullifying the command of God and the example that God set at the creation of the world. That God instituted the Sabbath at the beginning of creation, long before the Mosaic Law was ever made. 
So an example, his example of resting on the seventh day leads us to rest and worship and to cease from our normal labors on the Lord's day. So this verse is not nullifying our, the, the, the benefit and the get-to of resting on the Lord's day, but it's rather saying that we're not being held in bondage to the various and extensive Sabbaths with all of their extra-biblical rules and requirements We've been set free from all of those things in Christ, free to find true Sabbath rest. If you want, if you want to talk more about that after the service, we can, we can chat about it more. But uh, let's move on to verses 18 and 19, uh, in, still in Colossians 2, uh, verse 18 and 19. So he says, Let no one cheat you of your reward, taking delight in false humility and worship of angels, in, intruding into those things which he has not seen. Vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind and not holding fast to the head from whom all the body nourished and knit together by joints and ligaments grows with the increase that is from God. Paul again warns us not to be influenced by these Judaizers who wish to cheat us of our reward. They're actually after something. They actually want to cheat us of our reward. These particular scoundrels love to appear humble to everyone. These are the kind of people you would likely hear give the humble brag. If, you've ever know, if you know what the humble brag is, the humble brag goes something like this. Um, I'm extremely humbled to be honored with the title of number one shower ring salesman in four counties. <laughs> so that's the humble brag. And in Paul's day, these people, these people that wanted to appear super humble, super uh, full of humility... They felt that angels were powerful. They felt that angels were close to God. And so it was a wise thing to include them in their worship. And this is similar to the way the Roman Catholic Church includes prayers to Mary and to past saints. For the Roman Catholics, their argument is that just as we might ask a fellow believer to pray for us, Mary and the saints can also be asked to pray for us and intercede to the Father for us on our behalf. This seems really humble. As if we understand we need all the help we can get. It couldn't hurt, right? Maybe it will make us a little bit closer to God, which has always been our noble and dedicated goal. But if you think this way, you aren't believing the good news that Christ is sufficient to save sinners and to make you fully qualified to come right into the presence of God and crawl up into his lap. That's essentially what the author of Hebrews says. We can come boldly into his presence. There's no reason why we would pray to Mary or, or, or St. Augustine or to angels or to dead relatives when we have access, direct access, to the sanctuary where our Father is revi- residing. In fact, he's calling us to come. He calls us there. So why would we have a middleman? When we introduce extra-biblical ideas such as angel worship, food restrictions, new moon festivals, etc. We are, in practice, not holding to Christ as the head, from whom Paul tells us comes the growth of the rest of the body, the church. Remember, back in chapter 1, verse 18, uh, Paul says this, he says, And he, speaking of Christ, he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he, Christ, may have the preeminence. We hold to Christ and Christ alone because that's where our growth comes from. 
If we're worshiping angels, if we're attempting to reestablish food laws, if we're restricting certain types of drinking and requiring celebrations of certain festivals, we are forgetting who is already preeminent. There is nothing you can add to the work of Christ, and that's good news. In all ways, adding additional requirements only serves to water down the work of Christ to save sinners. It is a sign of spiritual pride and immaturity. It's not no big deal. It's a real big deal. It is Christ plus nothing that equals salvation. Never forget that. Christ plus nothing that equals salvation. Trying to add to his work is a sign that you're not growing in Christ and are instead being held captive by the elementary principles of this world. As Tyler preached last week, we are saved unto good works. Our good works do not save us. While those of us in the church, in this church in particular, we probably are not going to be that tempted to worship angels. Um, we also most likely aren't going to be tempted to pray to Mary or the saints. Um, but it could be that a much more likely scenario where we might be cheated of our reward due to something to that false humility relates to our fathers in our midst. So fathers, don't worry, I'm not going to do the the typical evangelical thing and beat up on you on Father's Day. This is going to be encouraging. Fathers, you are the head of your homes, just as Christ is the head of the body, the church. There's a temptation in our culture obsessed with with so-called toxic masculinity to engage in false humility as it relates to this role of headship. We can be tempted to overemphasize the servant nature of our leadership, and this can cause us, in effect, to not actually lead. We must not abdicate our role as leaders due to laziness, political pressure, feelings of inadequacy, or false humility. As we've been appointed, we didn't choose this position, we've been appointed to this position by our Father in heaven. To faithfully obey God is to serve your family by leading them in faith, carrying the glorious burden and glorious weight, so it's a glorious burden, carrying the glorious burden of responsibility and headship. As fathers, we must not shy away from the role God has assigned us. Fathers, you might not feel you are qualified to rule your homes. You may ask yourself, how is simply being biologically male a qualification for headship? Well, because God said so. He was the one who made you male, so that, so that you might serve others by leading them. Don't allow the false humility often masked beneath the banner of servant leadership to rob you of your reward. Wait a second. Did he just say that servant leadership is false humility? Hang on just a second. Well, hear me out. Hear me out. This is why I think servant leadership needs to be examined. Being a father and lovingly ruling your home is a glorious thing and something that all men should aspire toward. It is false humility that causes us to second guess the authority God has given fathers. It's a lack of faith and it's spiritually prideful. It says that we know better than God. Our false humility as a culture, mocks at the idea that God's design of fathers ruling their homes could come about simply by that father being born a man. Where is the merit in that, we want to say? How are you qualified? Are you really qualified simply because you're a man? The answer is yes. 
The answer is yes, because God makes you qualified. You didn't choose to be a man. God chose for you to be a man. Because we can be so swayed by this cultural obsession to strip men of their God-given role as rulers, we emasculate the idea of leader down to something we call a servant leader. Someone always serving, but never actually leading. Someone always serving, but never actually leading. Now, I'm not being critical of the term servant leader as an idea. In fact, I quite agree with it. But rather, it's practice. God calls us to be leaders who, yes, lead by serving. Absolutely. But also who serve by leading. We must serve our wives and our families by leading them. When we have this paradigm shift, this causes us to get out onto the front lines of the battle where glory and reward awaits. So how can we as fathers serve by leading? Well, we can lead our families into the house of the Lord for worship each and every week of the year. We can be the first ones on our knees confessing our own sins and leading our families to follow our example. We can lead by singing the psalms and hymns with a battle fervor followed by a hearty, earth-shattering amen that is free of self-consciousness. We can faithfully lead family worship, learning and singing psalms and hymns, reading and teaching our children Proverbs, telling them Bible stories at bedtime, catechizing them daily with good doctrine, and proactively washing our wives in the water of the Word. We can be the first one to wake up each morning and the last one to go to bed as we provide financially, emotionally, and spiritually for those who've been placed under our rule. If you guys know me, you know that that first one to wake up in the morning, that's aimed directly at my heart. (laughs) We can lead the education of our covenant children, not leaving it merely for mom to figure out, but shouldering the leadership and responsibility, seeing to it that our children are brought up in the fear and admonition of the Lord. We We can be the first to forego our own comfort, our own entertainment, the first to see to it that everyone has been fed and be the last one to sit down to eat. We can do this because God's word is clear that we must rule as Christ ruled. Jesus loves and leads the church by laying down his life for her, even in her unloveliness. Yes, he led by serving, but he also served by leading. He was unashamed of the role of king, the crown of glory his father had given him. As fathers, on this Father's Day, we need to remember the words of Revelation 6, excuse me, Revelation 1, verse 6, which says, To him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood, and has made us kings and priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Fathers, have the same king mindset, the same vision. We have been made kings like Christ. And we mustn't be afraid to rule as kings with a fearless leadership that seeks to serve by leading while guarding against false humility so that we might obtain a reward that is secure and can never be taken from us. Let's move on to verse 20 um, through uh, 20 and 21. Therefore, if you died with Christ from the basic principles of the world, why, as though living in the world, do you subject yourself to regulations? Do not touch, do not taste, do not handle, which all concern things which perish with the using, according to the commandments and doctrines of men. 
So Paul here in this section asks a rhetorical question. His question is, if we've died with Christ, that means we have died to the laws, such as don't touch this, don't handle that, don't eat that, don't, don't eat this, etc. When you're dead, you can't be held accountable to follow any laws. That's, that's some basic legal 101. Now that Christ has come and is saving the world, all foods have been made clean. We've talked about that. Sin doesn't spread through the touching of or handling of unclean things. Christ's righteousness is spreading and death is not. The sun of righteousness is rising and the darkness of the night is fleeing. This is all wonderful. And we are dead to those basic and elementary principles of the world that in former days were our tutor. The law was our tutor. It guarded and protected us as we awaited the coming Messiah. But they no longer offer any additional benefit in our desire to please God because we are dead in Christ. We can't use the law to make ourselves more acceptable to Christ. We're dead. Now, thankfully, we haven't stayed dead. And the good news is that we are also risen in Christ. When we rise with Christ, we also we rise into the world he has redeemed and is redeeming. The law is now redeemed. And our understanding of it and obedience to it is also redeemed. It still exists. As we said before, Jesus said it would never pass away. But now we have been made able to follow it without being held under it or being condemned by it. If you truly want to please God, then you must recognize that following the old covenant laws will not please God. And in fact, in many instances, he has now forbidden you from following this is, not, this is not a small thing. You have died to that basic principle and should not be looking to it to offer any salvation. Like I said, it's, this is a big deal. It's not it's simply a preference where on one hand you follow old covenant laws and on the other you don't. And well, if you don't follow them, that would actually be better. No, there isn't room for both. It's either one or the other. In the sunrise of Christ, following the old covenant laws as though Christ hasn't come is nothing short of idolatry. Following food laws when Christ has made all things clean is worshiping the creation rather than the creator. It's worshiping your own declaration of what is clean and unclean. If you are dead to those things, why on earth would you subject yourself to them? Do you actually trust Christ's work to be sufficient for saving you? If so, then you will find no need for additional displays of piety No need for extra levels of devotion to move you up the spiritual approval ladder. You are already fully approved by God through the work of Jesus. Last verse, verse 23. These things, referring to what we just talked about, these things indeed have an appearance of wisdom in self-imposed religion, false humility and neglect of the body, but they are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. See, Paul is not naive. He's a lot of things, but naive is definitely not one of them. He knows why it's a temptation for Christians to hold themselves to extra-biblical and extra-Christian standards. He's never going to tell us to not do something that we're not going to in some way be tempted to do. So a desire to follow these old covenant laws gives us the appearance of wisdom, often cloaked in that same false humility he's already warned us about. We, as, as people, as people, we're super creative when it comes to finding ways to try and give ourselves credit, at least partial credit, for our salvation. Um, I have a book uh, called Stories of the Saints 
that I often read to my kids. And I will give it a cautious recommendation, uh, as it can be read somewhat like fairy tales for Christians. Um, The book, though, here's the warning, the book is written by a Roman Catholic and follows dozens of Christians that the Roman Catholic Church has given the title of saint to. So, a little bit of a side note here, but Colossians teaches that all those baptized into Christ are saints. The Roman Catholics, they have a different system which adds different levels of devotion before one can achieve this title. And I didn't check beforehand, but I don't think anybody achieves the title of saint prior to death. They have to die and they have to be recognized. And most, most people are not saints in the Catholic Church. And that's a big problem, but that's a, that's a rabbit trail we won't go down. In this book, The Stories of the Saints, a very common theme found in the mythical retelling of the lives of these past saints regards their self-imposed religious neglect of the body. Some take vows of silence. Others fast for months while living in the desert. Some live in caves trying to stay away from the unspiritual, other, from the unspiritual world. And one super spiritual guy lived on the top of a 60-foot pole for 30 years. This neglect of the body is done, at least in their mind, so that the person can prove their devotion to Christ, thereby deserving of their salvation and becoming more holy and close to God. This is madness. I don't have to tell you that living on top of a pole for 30 years is madness, but it is. It's madness and it's a simple lack of faith. Holding oneself to a standard higher than what the Bible reveals may have the appearance of wisdom. And it may look impressive, but it's of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. I remember early in my own life holding to a teetotaler view of alcohol consumption. Um, Teetotaler is the word for total abstinence. Uh, Total abstinence from alcohol was the only view I felt was truly Christian. And I felt everyone else should follow that too. But a gracious friend pointed out to me that I was in my own mind attempting to be holier than the Bible. The Bible never prohibits alcohol, certainly prohibits drunkenness, um, but oftentimes it requires it in certain, uh, in things like um, in, in, the, uh, uh, in some of the offerings of the Old Covenant or, of course, uh, Jesus instituting the Lord's Supper using wine. So I was holding myself to a self-imposed religion that offered no value against the indulgence of the flesh. It wasn't protecting me from indulging the flesh. Ironically, this is the ironic part. This is, this is where we get everything screwed up. Ironically, I felt alcohol consumption was a dangerous fleshly indulgence. And so I sought to impose on myself and others a strict prohibition, which did not lead to a life of less indulgence, but of more indulgence. Because now I had to deal with false humility, which is just a fancy way of saying pride. This is because only Christ's work on the cross is of any value to combat fleshly indulgence. If you want to guard against fleshly indulgence, and saints, you definitely do. You want to spend your whole life guarding and combating fleshly indulgence. If you want to battle that, Christ's work on the cross is the only thing that will actually set you free from it. So glory be to God that I've since repented of that view and consider myself a recovering teetotaler. So let me ask you this. Do you believe that Christ is sufficient? If so, stop trying to replace his sufficiency with your own Christless righteousness. Such self-imposed religion isn't protecting you from fleshly indulgence anyway. Do you have a sin problem? 
Is there ongoing indulgence of the flesh in your life? Don't try to combat it by relying on the creation of extra-biblical rules. Those things might help you stay away from the sin, but they can never save you from your sin. Only Christ's righteousness, effectively applied to every one of your indulgences of the flesh, can cleanse your sins from scarlet to whiter than snow. So as we conclude Colossians chapter 2, I want you to think about three things. First, don't be a pleaser of men, but rather be a pleaser of God. If others try to hold you to a standard or rule that Christ did not command, you are required to not let their judgment against you hold you back from obeying God. Just as the anger of man cannot produce the righteousness of God, neither can our fear of man produce true righteousness. Good works that truly please God are only produced when our hearts have been changed and transformed through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Or to put it another way, only when we fear God instead of man. So, be pleasers of men. Don't be pleasers of men, but rather be pleasers of God. Second, beware. Be on guard against false humility. And I, I, I spoke specially to the fathers in our midst, but everyone here listening, including the guy speaking, has a tendency towards false humility. False humility is a real problem. So beware of false humility. It is nothing more than a demented form of spiritual pride. Fathers, cultivate your king mindset. You've been called to lead your family in the fear of the Lord, protecting them from the fear of man. That's your role, to protect your family from the fear of man. Serve your families by leading them without false humility, which ultimately ends in not leading in the first place. It's good to be a man. Be grateful for it. Be grateful for the calling to which you've been called. It's a glorious thing to be a father, and you were made to rule. So don't shirk that responsibility behind the false humility of egalitarianism. Act like a king, set your face like flint, and serve your family by laying down your life for them. Third and last, believe that Christ is sufficient. If you truly believed that Christ has made you acceptable to God, you would realize how foolish and silly it is to try to make yourself acceptable to God through various works of the flesh. He is already so full of love for you that he willingly laid down his life and died an agonizing and humiliating death so that your sins would be fully cleansed and taken out of the way. He didn't do this grudgingly or with resentment. He did it for the joy that was set before him. A joy that sprang from the knowledge, from his knowledge, that he was laying his life down for his bride, who would one day be glorious in her resplendent beauty, having been fully redeemed by his love. Stop thinking that you need to, or even can, do things that make yourself acceptable to God. Christ's work is sufficient, and so rest in his work. And when you rest in his work, it will free you to build his kingdom, because you'll be holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Amen. We're now coming to the Lord's table, and we've just heard that Christ is sufficient. But sufficient for what? What has he accomplished? For his people, he has secured our salvation so that when we die, we will go to heaven and be with him. And one day we will rise again from the dead. 
But his sufficient work has accomplished something else right here and right now. It's given us an invitation of welcome to his table, fully at peace with his father. In the Old Covenant, there were three main offerings. The guilt offering, um, this corresponds to our confession of sin and the promise of Christ's forgiveness. Then there was the ascension offering, which was also called the whole burnt offering. And this corresponds to the reading and preaching of God's word, the giving of tithes and offerings, that kind of thing. We're, We're being cut up and ascending into the heavenly places. And the final offering that was made was the peace offering, which the worshiper was actually allowed to partake of this meal. That corresponds to where we are now. We've been forgiven, we've been consecrated, and now we get to commune. Christ's work has been sufficient to bring us to the table and to make us worthy and wanted participants. For those in Christ, we actually belong here, not because of our ability to do the right thing, but because of the sufficiency of Christ to save sinners and unite us in peace with God. And in fact, we we read this in in our Heidelberg Catechism today with question 66. Uh, It says, um, this is the promise that God graciously grants us forgiveness of sins and everlasting life because of the one sacrifice of Christ accomplished on the cross. That's what this table and that's what the Lord's Supper um, actually visualizes. We get to see the forgiveness of sins and actually hold it and drink of it, um, spiritually, of course. Um, and so, for those of you who love Jesus, for those of you who've been baptized into him and um, call upon his name, come, come, welcome to Jesus. Well, the charge is this, fear God and seek to please him. Ignore ungodly judgments from others. Beware of false humility, cloaked in spiritual servant language, but in fact, in reality, is insidious pride. Finally, believe that Christ is sufficient. He is the only one who can save sinners. Stop trying to please God through your own works. He is already so delighted in you that he sent Jesus to deliver you from the darkness. Submit to his rule and headship and sufficiency in the name of Jesus. Now receive the benediction from Hebrews chapter 12, verses 20 through 21. Now may the God of peace who brought up again, who brought again from the dead, our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and all God's people said, Amen. Amen.